Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. We've got so much information we can access across so many devices and more and more rights holders and brands are creating content, not to mention friends and people in our professional networks creating content on social channels that it's almost inescapable. And for a lot of us, we spend a huge amount of time on computers and on our mobile devices, so much so that those mobile devices feel like they are an extension of a limb. How often have you just reached for your phone when your attention isn't being held by something? It has become our default. Reach for the phone to find something that will engage us. Our attention spans are becoming shorter and we get distracted more easily. And there lies the challenge for both rights holders and brands. With so much access and so much content, the pressure to create great and engaging content that holds an audience's attention well is huge. One person who knows a lot about the space is Spencer Nolan, Head of Consulting UK and Europe at Nielsen Sports. And Spencer joins us on the show to discuss number three in Nielsen Sports Commercial Trends in Sport 2017, and that is changing attention spans, prompting rights holders to rethink. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and you're listening to episode 43 of Inside Sponsorship. Wherever you are in the world, and whether you are a long-time listener or a new one, it's great to have you listening. Before we hear from Spencer, normally this is where I'd give a shout-out to a listener who shot us a note to say hi and let us know where they work or where in the world they are listening to the show from. But sadly, no one has been in touch lately. Now, mostly that's sad for me because I feel really great about myself when people get in touch to let us know that they like the show. Uh, but help us out. If you haven't been in touch before, just drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or find me on LinkedIn at using Daniel Oyston or find Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram because a recent study has found that 90% of people who get a shout out on the show become a 15% better sponsorship or commercial manager. And that may or may not be true, but uh, do yourself a favour, get in touch, and we'll give you a shout-out. So in light of no shout-outs, I thought I'd give a shout-out to some people I met last week. So last week I headed to Sydney for the annual Ozpod conference at the ABC. It's a great chance to get out of the office and to meet and to talk shop with lots of other podcasters and also take some time to think about your own show and hear from some industry experts about the trends and what they're doing with their shows. But The night before, the Sydney Podcasters Meetup Group convened at Radio Hub's headquarters where Cooper Silk and Craig Markham, hosts of the Sydney Roosters podcast, welcomed us for an informal gathering. So a shout out to those guys. The meetup was great and the chats were great and the hospitality was certainly fantastic. And just quickly, as we start to get close to episode 50 of Inside Sponsorship, I've got a few ideas to help spruce up the show. So if you, the listeners, have any segments or things you'd love to hear in the show, then be sure to get in touch and let me know. Also joining us on the podcast, as usual, is our MD, Mark Thompson, who, whenever we welcome a Nielsen staff member on the show to discuss one of their commercial trends, he also blogs about the topic through the lens of what the trend means for the sponsorship industry. And this time around... Mark outlines the opportunities that present themselves for both rights holders and brands because of those changing attention spans. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm well. What have we got on uh, 
the agenda for today? Uh, we're talking about the rights holders being forced to adjust sponsorship because of the changing attention spans in the market. Easy one to write. Sat down, just banged it out. Funnily enough, I got sidetracked because my attention wasn't able to be held for long <laughs> enough. So I was sitting down to write it and looked out my window just out, out here at out the office. There's a big construction site across the road and there's this bloke just walking there hosing dirt. Oh, glad I don't have that job. It wasn't cleaning anything. It was just hosing so you got a of dirt. So as you sat down to write a blog about attention spans, you got distracted by a bloke hosing dirt. Because of my attention span. Well, because it's, it's funny, I remember reading that uh, a couple of years back, Microsoft surveyed about 2,000 people um, and they studied the brain activity of a couple of hundred people and various tasks and things like that. And in that report, I think they said that they cited that the average attention span now is just eight seconds when it used to be 12 about 15, 16 mm. years ago, and the, which is interesting because the average goldfish apparently only has an attention span of nine seconds where would you peg yours um sorry yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> leave the jokes to me uh, so i mean we've got a lot going on in our lives there don't we yeah mate heaps going on so that you know and more more is accessible than before i wouldn't say more is going on in our lives than before it was just you know without the uh the information being at our fingertips we're able to filter it better so now that the, the sort of temptation of just accessing information after information, having a quick look at Facebook, having a look mm. at Instagram, having a you know a, a game of golf on an app or something like that, it's just all there, right? So the ability for people to connect um, or us to connect with them through multiple channels as, as channels at once is kind of makes it hard to stay focused. And so that Nielsen Sports have written about this trend in their. Uh, Commercial Trends in Sport 2017 report. What's mm. that trend tell us? Look, it, it actually gives us a big number. So, well, big, bigger than I thought. 15% of the population has shifted their interest levels from one specific thing, so liking one specific sporting team or one specific product line or brand, to having those same 15% of people having a, a slight interest in a much wider variety of things. I wonder if that's because, we've, like you were saying before, we've just got access to more stuff, so we're exposed to more things, and so, you know, just based on numbers, our interest has probably peaked a little bit, isn't it? I think also, and, and it's not so much a learned um, behaviour as, as more of an ingrained one, because the, you know, the trend speaks about women um, as being a sort of a, a target market for this research, but also the millennial and centennial sort of generations, so they've especially the centennials they've grown up with this technology mm. so they haven't known anything else I, I still remember having to you know circular dial a friend's phone <laughs> number on the phone <laughs> yeah that's i remember I the day they bought in an extra number on our phone number yeah well i've lived in uh, this city long enough when it only had six digits yeah. the phone numbers so <laughs> anyway um apart from not having to use dialed phones anymore and shorter <laughs> phone numbers what's it all mean for sponsorship so sponsorship professionals, the, the, the insights that we read in these types of reports, for me, should be taken really seriously because not only do they sort of inform us of how our market's currently thinking, it actually shapes the way we need to start thinking around how we activate and drive value in our partnerships. Um, you know, how concept, content is consumed is really sort of interesting then around how you help work with your partners around certain, um, you know, things relating to sponsorship assets so 
yeah, it is it is quite interesting um, for me around psychologically how to access the right audience using the right medium. Mm. And without studying, well, while studying the obvious, there's always two sides of the fence in sponsorship at yeah. a minimum. There's the opportunities for rights holders and then there's also opportunities for brands. Let's take a look at the opportunities for rights holders. Look, I focus this on how rights holders can use this information to stand out from the crowd. And as per usual, I've broken it down into a small list. <laughs> um, I help this target my attention yeah i can see that (laughs) so you know the number one (laughs) the first one is the the diversification of available benefits um you know to offer current and existing partners because of you know the the knowledge that different audiences react and engage with different mediums and different platforms and different types of content enable you to sell more stuff to more people, more brands, depending on who they're looking to target, if you can create a list of benefits that helps engage that. Um, and also, by understanding this information, it gives you a better chance of accessing a new generation of audience mm. because they're actually going to engage with you rather than just sort of passively not taking much notice of a billboard or something. And then the increased revenue opportunities um, that, are, that are sort of available to you by providing more relevant content to brands who are looking to attract specific audiences and, and those brands may not have otherwise been interested in, in you as a rights holder because they might have pigeonholed you as being a sporting team rather than a, a media opportunity to access a new mm. generation and gender or segment of the market. Yeah, well, what's interesting for me there is you spoke first about diversification, then accessing the new generation and then increased revenue opportunities. I think diversification and then accessing increased revenue opportunities comes from that second point around understanding those new audiences, that new generation of audience, because then you can take a look at what opportunities there are, properties and benefits that align with them because of those channels that they're accessing Mm. information through, and then taking those opportunities to uh, a, a sponsor with a good understanding of the audience. And that, that's exactly where these sorts of research pe- pieces and the companies that perform them, Nielsen in this case, that's why they're so important and, and their relevance has never been higher. As a good neighbour, let's stick our head over the other side of the fence and take a look at brands. What yes. opportunities are there for brands when they're considering the, cha- the changing attention spans of audiences? Look, a lot of this just quantifies know what everyone's known for a while is that the days of sponsorship just being about brand recognition and positioning are long gone so sponsor um, sponsorship sorry is uh is now used as a strategy to engage audiences um you know which which brands would otherwise find difficult to to attract and understanding this type of information gives them the opportunity to leverage a mutually engaging interest which is the rights holder to hit those those sort of target markets strategically rather than just through a passive logo somewhere so i think brands can now have the right to ro- to work with rights holders to drive objective based outcomes against benefits um you know they can then use that information to engage audiences through a, to- a really wide variety of, of of sort of methods which target sort of a direct segment of the fan group of, of the rights holder what's on the table does all that boil down to Mm, cannibalising the opportunities. So we might have had you know, X number of opportunities over there. They're just shifting. Is there more opportunity or is it less because it's niche? Where do you think it sits? I think there's more opportunities. So, I mean, there's, there's far more opportunities than threats that emerge out of this trend. Obviously, it does threaten some traditional big dollar figure 
partnerships perhaps. Well, and the threat is also if you don't change to mm. meet the changing attention spans and audience, then you're stagnant and um, you well, become pretty susceptible then. Well, yeah, that, that's a critical threat. That kind of threatens your existence. So you, you have to be, at least be moving in some way forward. I'll edit some dark music under that. <laughs> uh, look, some of the sort of opportunities that should excite sponsored professionals, you know, like what we said before, the ability to offer a wider range of benefits tailored for specific audiences, then they're following on commercial revenue growth opportunities because of the larger lists of benefits. This is the most attractive part for me, though, is, is being able to go out and find new brands to your mm. portfolio and move away from those sort of eight-core you know, airline bank. And is it fair to say that a lot of these opportunities might, because they are quite niche, they probably give some of those non-big traditional core areas of sponsorship, you know, automotive, airlines, those sorts mm. of, gives you the opportunity to bring some smaller brands into the fold? Yeah, the challenger brands can come in even within those categories because you, you may even, you, you can segment down those categories. If you know your audience well enough, somebody like a, you know, a Lexus or a Range Rover, they, they've got a specific target market. If you can quantify what segments of your market are within their target market, it's kind of a waste of time and money hitting those other ones that aren't part of those. So you could segment out and have a sort of a luxury car partnership and a sort of everyday man <laughs> car partnership. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> what are you got a Kia? No, I don't have a Kia. <laughs> they don't make... No. You used to. <laughs> no, then my wife had a Kia. Um yeah. Where will this take us? Where are we going with all this? Is our attention being going to get that bad that we can't pay attention to anything? <laughs> or is the the onus and the focus back on the rights holders and the brands to work together to, like you said earlier, access the right audiences through the right channels, but actually put engaging content in front of them so that they get more than an average share of attention, which is ultimately leads to achieving their objectives and their, their return on investment? Yeah, look, I, I actually think that um, this kind of insight helps you launch an argument to, to move sponsorship away from a luxury or appetite-based marketing tactic, and it, it actually moves it further towards being a necessary strategic move mm. because rights holders own those audiences. They've got such a high affinity, affinity with them, and, and research will show you the realisation of loyalty towards brands that sponsor a mutually you know, loved sort of rights holder in a sporting sense of a football team you know that's hitting an audience that you're not going to hit through traditional means so it becomes necessary if you want to be a relevant brand in the marketplace sponsorship must be a at least a highly considered part of your strategy if you want to read that full blog just head along to sponsor.net head to the resources section and then the blog section uh great chat before you go we just check how old mate went with the hose in the dirt it's still there but it looks cleaner (laughs) (laughs) cheers mate cheers over the last 20 years spencer nolan has amassed a wealth of consulting experience because before joining nielsen sports with the acquisition of repucom in 2016 spencer previously worked for cello media a subsidiary of liberty global as strategy and m&a director Spencer brings significant broadcast and media industry experience, having driven strategic projects for the group and led the valuations of numerous companies across the media value chain as both a channel owner and platform operator. Prior to Liberty Global, Spencer was a consultant at Deloitte and McKinsey, where he worked extensively in the TMT practice. 
At Nielsen Sports, Spencer is also responsible for leading the consulting practice in the UK and Ireland. And to date, he's worked on a variety of strategic projects as well as sponsorship and broadcast valuations for some key global clients, including rights holders FIFA, UEFA and World Rugby, brands ASICS and Sega, and broadcasters BT and ITV. Here's Spencer to discuss how changing attention spans are prompting rights holders to rethink. Spencer Nolan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. I've, I, I've had a couple of standard icebreaker questions that I've been asking, so but I've changed this one, so I'm mixing it up a little bit, so hopefully it goes well. But if you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? Mm, wow, okay. Um, well, I think, um, I guess it's probably a bit of a stock answer, but I think, you know, any of the, any of the big tech companies out there, and the big four, like the, you know, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Googles, the, uh, the Apples, but I think I'm probably, I'm saying like, probably Jeff Bezos, uh, Bezos, who, uh, you know, just, I think the, the way that Amazon is going about various different things, he's kind of privy to a lot of, you know, knowledge and information because they're spending a lot of, like, R&D and things like that, so, I think they're throwing money at stuff to find out the answer about whether it's kind of going to work for them as a business. And, and so there's lots of wider implications for that. So it'd be pretty cool to kind of know some of the things that he, he probably knows and, and the work that's being around AI and things like that would be pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, I'd probably go with him, although he's not especially the nicest guy to work for. So uh, maybe it could also be like that for a little bit as well. Very good. And second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Okay, uh, I was uh, I was a paper paper boy. Uh, I was I ended up being one of the oldest paper boys in the world. I was eighteen and I was still doing it uh, before I left the university. So uh, yeah, paper boy was my uh, first job. Very good, Spencer. You're the head of consulting UK and Europe at Nielsen Sports. You've had stints at some of the big players in the consulting field. What's been your pathway and experience to your current job up until now? Okay. Uh, yeah, so I, I had a general management degree and then uh, I knew I wanted to go to consulting to kind of get a good level of kind of responsibility uh, you know, uh, and look at lots of different factors. So, you know, I think it's a great, uh, great, great you know, piece to be able to do that at a young age. And then you know, I think after that, a few people kind of get uh, slightly easy feet and like, a bit more accountability. So uh, I think I think that's important. So a lot of people move into industry as did I. And so... Uh, interested in the media and entertainment space, I moved, moved into uh, Liberty Global, uh, where I did like an M and A and strategy role, uh, and then uh, and then yeah, I was there for about ten years. Really enjoyed it, uh, and then eventually uh, wanted to move into sports. And uh, yeah, the opportunity came up with Brett uh, as was and Nielsen Sport as is now, and, and to head of consulting. And so yeah, it's a really interesting space um, at the moment. So that, that was kind of my pathway. So now, at the moment, you're, as I said before, head of consulting UK and Europe at Nielsen Sports. Now, that sounds like a big and a important job. What does it entail? Where where do you focus your attention normally? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, you know, my focus has been on the UK at least for starters and supporting you know uh, our UK MD and just make sure we hit our numbers is, is obviously important for any. Uh, for most businesses and kind of a sales or business development kind of angle to it. Um, but then outside of that, you know, from a consulting point of view, it's kind of obviously delivery of quality projects and, and ensuring kind of a, 
team management and resource allocation and the operational side of that's important. Uh, I think also bringing in kind of you know, new products and ideas, um, you know, from the, the, the Nielsen membership and, and how they might apply to our clients mm-hmm. is important. So, so yeah, I think, I think there's various different pieces, but there's loads to go up. Uh, some people say we, we, we're drowning in opportunity, which, which sounds great, but, uh, in other words, it isn't great. And, and I think, you know, prioritization is, is super important. So, uh, yeah, sort of keep, uh, keep the sales and big that, but, um, they're maintaining kind of delivering quality work as well. So trend number three in Nielsen Sports commercial trends in sport 2017 is the changing attention spans, prompting rights holders to to rethink. Your research shows that people are intensely interested in fewer things, but generally interested in more things. Can you explain what that actually means and some of the numbers and your research behind it? Sure, yeah. So um, we, we do a study uh, called Sports DNA, which is in uh, around 30 markets uh, biannually, where we're, we're asking consumers uh, various questions uh, at, at top level. But certainly uh, one of them is about their interest in categories and passion points. And I think what we've seen over the last seven years, uh, we've been commissioning this, is, um, is that, yeah, as you say, kind of people are generally interested in more things. And it's around 15% increase over the period where yeah, people are just interested in in generally more things as we say and, and that's been enabled through you know like tech so the fact that everyone's got a smartphone the fact that broadband speeds are pretty high now and therefore the explosion of kind of content video content means that we've all got a you know broader yeah broader set of things that we kind of might be interested in there so the, the detriment of that is that ultimately you know, we, we do only have a certain amount of brain span and, and, and bandwidth for this and so so I think that the areas that we're now seeing as well is that actually 50% uh, of are intensely interested in fewer things. So, you know, that, that, that piece is really hard to get to because, you know, people are just, you know, they have that attention span that doesn't allow them to be intensely interested for, for as many activities and passion points. So, so that's a, a certainly trend we're seeing and certainly playing out in the, in, in the sports entertainment space. Well, when I hear that attention spans are changing, I think, yeah, but if the content is good, then I'll watch loads of it. And so Netflix is a great example. I don't necessarily do this, but I know people who will binge watch an entire series as soon as it comes out. Now, that just tells me that the content, if the content is good enough to capture their attention and that it's good enough to keep them engaged, how much pressure is there now on rights holders and brands to work together to, to create truly engaging content? Netflix is, you know, even their top series don't draw massive audiences, um, and you know, except a few hits ultimately. And so these hits, like uh, the House of Cards, I mean, they're spending, uh, you know, millions per episode on on these on these these pieces of content. And so uh, even the biggest franchises in the US just don't have that level of, of money to put towards content and, and driving content. So, so I think that the comparisons are a little bit better, but but yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Huge pressure in the market now, so that's why and brands to kind of work together on on, on creating engaging content, as you say, cutting, like cutting through uh, you know, to, to make sure it's of interest to both the few uh, as well as the many, and then you know, driving that engagement. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot more co-funded content from right from a brand perspective, for sure. A few episodes back, we had Max Barnett on the show discussing how IP owners are controlling content and the conversation. 
I want to ask a similar question to one I asked Max, and that is that many in the marketing and content space for some time now have spruiked the brands, and in this context, I mean rights holders, not those brands sponsoring, that they should see themselves as publishers. If rights holders truly embrace being a publisher, and I know that there is no silver bullet to any of these challenges, but if they did truly embrace being a a publisher, wouldn't that be a massive step forward, assuming they focused on the best content for their audiences? I mean, yeah, short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, we're certainly starting to see some of the bigger rights holders driving that content agenda, and we're uh, having teams uh, and budgets available to, to, to do to do this. So it's, it's certainly starting to happen. Uh, but of course, for them, there's this balance of, of keeping those paying sponsors and happy, and, and therefore, you know, these elements of co-creation of content you know, between rights holders and brand is, is happening. Um, but yeah, we're certainly seeing, you know, from a research point of view, that if it's if it's an owned platform, then you're more likely to also look to have the audience by consumer to engage with that content and more likely to view uh, the content. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's critically important that they're not just aware that's driving this uh, change that we're that we're seeing, but uh, having the budget available is difficult. And uh, yeah, the balance of keeping the sponsors happy is also kind of a thing that you know, all rights holders are. You mentioned it before, one of the reasons our attention spans are changing is because we have so much access to content and broadband speeds and and even mobile um, data speeds are are, are greater and that's all quite often through our mobile devices. Considering on average people spend about 83 hours per month on their mobile phones, should rights holders and brands be focusing, do you think, on a mobile-first approach to engagement? Uh, I, I think it's what's more important is that it's a content-first strategy. So, so that's the key piece, really. I mean, what is it that uh, the audience wants to consume? The, the type of content. And um, so, absolutely, mobile is a critical lens. We look through that, and you know. Uh, much of the content is, is, is going to be relevant for mobile, but just as you know, we use different social media platforms to tell uh, other different stories or types of, or use different types of content uh, between, say, an Instagram or a Facebook or a Twitter. You know, absolutely important is, is to get that kind of a messaging up front and what is what is the type of story we want to tell to a certain consumer group, let's say. So uh, the content for, for mobile, you know, I wouldn't say second, but just another lens to kind of uh, deliver those. Uh, to look at that content, ultimately. Nielsen Sports Report notes that women, uh, millennials and centennials are increasingly attractive fan segments and that each group requires a distinct approach. Why do you think those fan segments are becoming increasingly attractive? Because they've quite often those segments have been there for some time. Why are they becoming increasingly attractive and, and why do rights holders and brands need to approach them in different ways? Okay, I mean, well, I guess you can take each of them. So women, I mean, yes, look, there's a lot of them. They've been, they've been here a while. Uh, <laughs> so I think we're seeing it as a good point, but we've seen that through our research. So I think there's like a 30% increase in football over the last five years from the, the female segment. So that translates into a huge kind of number of 
of interested uh, or additional interested followers uh, to sport, uh, to football in this case. Um, you know, there's a, a kind of a health and the well-being angle, and, and, and yeah, we're seeing uh, great advancements in the curriculum and, and education, trying to keep those uh, people involved in sport for longer. So, so yeah, we're seeing that kind of coming through a lot more. And when you talk about the only millennials, like the current um, demographic, everyone's talking about they're the near future. I mean, it's, it's a wide, broad demographic, um, uh, millennials, a relative kind of blunt tool, if you like, but. And then, and centennials, well, they're, they're, they're the ones that the right sort of and to kind of attract the future. They might not necessarily be the largest segment right now, but certainly engaging them now is critical to the future of, uh, of their success in terms of brand building, in terms of success for the rights holder and creating interest in their sport. So, so whilst the two that we mentioned, you know, they're a lot of segments, you know, they have a a few they are to the stories and drive them engaging content. And yeah, look, we need to talk about the, the localization of that content, languaging, the uh, different market, all of which are kind of critical. So, so yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's lots of things there for you know, the right sort of the brand to kind of, um, they need to do to approach them effectively, I think, with the right content. Apart from those market segments um, becoming more important, changing, needing different approaches, I'm interested in a deeper way in what's changed because for years... Um, old men in grey suits have been the guardians of tradition and, and, and loathe to adjust anything that might mean proper change. And to be fair, it is kind of hard to argue for change if nothing is actually wrong. So if TV revenue is really strong and participation is steady, it can sometimes be hard to uh, convince those uh, grey-haired men in grey suits that we do actually need to change. Why do you think we see so many rights holders pouring research resources into new formats now? Uh, well, I'd probably, I'd probably challenge the question a little bit. I think, um, You're allowed to do that. Ha, that's good. I'll, I'll go ask. Cause, uh, I think the TV revenue piece, but you see the big numbers of like, the football, say, the Premier League or, or the Australian market, there, you know, the big uplifts for AFL or NRL, etc. I mean, the, the, it's, it's this kind of a bifurcation that's happening in, in TV. And so, so it's kind of the haves and the have not. And so you are seeing the increases for the must-have, but then for some of the secondary and certainly tertiary kind of, uh, let's say, sports uh, properties. And actually, TV revenue, there's a struggle there uh, to kind of get the exposure on the terrestrial or pay TV. And so, so that's certainly kind of uh, a question mark there. And, and in terms of participation, it obviously depends on, on the sport, of course. But certainly in, in a number of markets, you know, and for certain sports, we are seeing you know, some declines there. Um, uh, either steady or, or some decline. And so, so yeah, it, it certainly depends on, on what, what we're talking here. But, but yeah, they, there's pressure now, I would say. And they also have to think, well, what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? What will be the millennial kind of push through to kind of uh, be the major, major person group? And, and that the centennial who, you know, might never engage uh, with the content because they follow it rather than participate on it, in it, if you like. So they need to be brought now. So yeah, it's a new format. You know, it's certainly uh, a key trend that we're seeing in the market at the moment for, for those kind of reasons. Really. The pressure is already kind of on for a number of sports to engage with that uh, millennium that centennial audience. And quite often, those new formats involve uh, shorter. Um 
construction of sports like T20 uh, and, and options like that. What's your opinion? Does creating those shorter event formats cannibalize the more traditional formats or is it a case of more is better in terms of either attracting new fans or actually engaging existing fans more? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, uh, um, my view is absolutely right. So they have to be careful not to alienate their existing fan base um, and, and, you know, that potential of cannibalizing. But, but no, I'm, I'm sitting more of the opinion that it is certainly better in terms of, yes, that attracting new fans or engaging with existing fans in a different way. And so, but yeah, but the whole idea of, you know, you've got to speculate to accumulate. I mean, you know, you need to be more innovative in this day and age uh, for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, really. And so, Engaging those fan bases, uh, both new and existing, you know, by, by trying something that's new, um, is, is important. And so, yeah, I, I believe it's additive at the moment. Another great thing. I'm all for more sport on TV. It's uh, great when summer rolls around in Australia here. Uh, we get about four or five weeks of uh, Big Bash T20 on cricket pretty much every single night. And while my son and I love it, my wife doesn't, doesn't, much, <laughs> doesn't much care for it. Now, Spencer, we've seen many rights holders across the world tweak their scheduling. The NFL introduced Thursday night football and the Premier League have carved out a package of Friday night live games. How does simply moving an, an existing game, so not changing the format, but just moving an existing game, for argument's sake, from a Sunday to a, a Thursday or a Friday, how does that actually attract more attention? Yeah, so I guess there's a few factors here, but um, you know, typically uh, you know, a lot of I mean, live sport is consumed uh, on a weekend. Um, you know, seeing some people playing, some people watching, but you know, there's, there's a busy amount of you know sports being scheduled on TVs on the weekend. So they're moving away from that. Um, you know, allows you know obviously potentially existing such new audience to kind of come and look at uh, those sports. But uh, I guess also uh, you're allowing kind of the change in distribution. So you know, of course. It might just be that you're, it's on exactly the same channel, just on a different night, but often you're seeing something in the US, uh, at the moment, then, you know, Twitter, for instance, is able to broadcast some of the, some of the games at the same time as, as the, as the traditional broadcaster, and therefore, it might reach a, a wider or a different audience. And then, ultimately, you can also kind of tweak around with the, the formatting and the presentation of the sport. So, whilst it doesn't have to be a new format, as we talked about earlier, you know, it's, it's very much kind of tweaking the way you might, um, yeah, position the sport or uh, talk about the sport and, and, and tweak the format. So a way of being innovative as well. So, yeah, there's, there's a few factors that play on there. Tweaking schedules can't be as simple as just, as you started to allude to there, can't be just as simple as shifting games to free nights of the week. We've seen, particularly in Australia, the, the National Rugby League competition run Monday night games for a number of years before it became obvious that the fans and the people, we just hated it and it was axed. That can clearly damage a rights holder and uh, hinder brands in achieving their ROI and ROO, particularly around the sponsorship space. How does the sport get the tweaking in terms of the scheduling right? What sort of things do they need to consider? Right. Um, yeah, obviously, they need to assess the competing schedules. So, you know, uh, yeah, what, what are the sports are kind of playing out that time? You know, what's popular? What do they mean? What could they kind of counter schedule against, uh, et cetera? Uh, so I think understanding their target market, so you know their, their existing fan base, uh, potentially casual fan base as well, um, you know when might be the most appropriate or best way of you know uh, presenting the content to them. 
Uh, we talked about tweaking the format. And of course, that's kind of a, another you know, element that we can kind of take into account. How can they deliver uh, that content to, to, the, to the consumer group? Um, so yeah, like by giving it a free window or something like that, you know, so through Twitter or Instagram stories for the, for the short form uh, version of the content, for instance. Um, yeah, there's, there's different ways, I think. So yeah, being able to be innovative it's, yeah, it's not just about just shifting the games around, but it it's also can be risky. Uh, you know, it's not easy to get it right first time. So there's some experimentation which can you know, frustrate or alienate some viewers. But that's the uh, that's the risk ultimately to try and get the rewards now or later down the line. It's a great segue that final comment into my next question about the risk to get rewards further down the line because the Big Bash, Australia's T20 cricket competition based on average attendance figures, is now ninth on the list of most attended sports leagues in the world, yet it has lost $33 million Australian dollars over the first five years. And I remember reading stories in the early days of the Indian Premier League T20 competition that the vast majority of fans were there on free tickets to help fill the stadium, so it looked good on TV. Now, there's a danger that rights holders can commit to different formats of their offerings and that they fall flat. And traditionally, rights holders can point to past successes and engaged audiences when they're selling sponsorship year on year around the same format. But for rights holders seeking sponsorship of new formats, is it really just a case of building a vision of what it can actually achieve and trying to sell that to sponsors? Yeah, I mean, no, that's right. I mean, you have to set out the vision. As you say, there's, there's maybe no, no history for that specific new format, but obviously, you know, there's a good chance that they have been, they've, well, they have to start somewhere and they've developed the, the format and the competition as it currently is, which has been probably a success in the, let's say, that the, the, the main area of the, of the competition. But so these new formats, but yeah, you're, you're selling the vision, you know, sponsors, you know, have a, a cleaner platform to, uh, to work with, maybe less clutter. They're, Starting on the journey, it's new, it's exciting. Uh, you know, you could potentially even say good chance it will be cheaper for a for brands to come in and, and, and sponsor slash activate around uh, the sport. So, so yeah, I think um, yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. So, you know, you have to set up the vision early um, and, and hope that sponsors will, will come on board with that. And, and you do see that. You do see some successes with that. Well, well, considering that new formats are usually unproven, yet rights holders have had probably certain mindsets and, and levels and expectations around existing sponsorships when they're selling it year on year. With new formats, should they be adjusting their expectations and, f- for want of a better f- uh, phrase, be ready to accept lower values of sponsorship? Uh, I guess the short answer is yes. Um, you know, for the reasons we mentioned earlier, it's, it's unproven and, and therefore it's, you know, they shouldn't be expecting the same level any time in the, in the, in the short uh, or even maybe medium term. So it, it depends on the objectives, ultimately. So, you know, is a new format there to drive, you know, specific, you know significant revenues for, or, or is it more of a, you know, a, a break-even marketing platform that allows, you know, brand building and, and bringing people into, let's call it the, the main uh, tournament or, or sport, if you like. So, yeah, it depends on the objectives to some extent. But, you know, yeah, the, yeah as we say, it's kind of, you know, very difficult to monetize uh, some of these things, and and yeah, you, you wouldn't bet the house on on, on some of them. But it's a, it's a way of, of building a brand in the marketing platform for, as I say, for the, for the, the health of the, the main sport, if you like. When looking for sponsorship 
of new formats. Do you think rights holders should be seeking more from their existing sponsors and putting opportunities to to take more from those existing sponsors? Do you think they should be having a more augmented portfolio in terms of sponsors having rights across multiple formats or do you think they should be siloing it all and and taking this as an opportunity potentially to to bring challenger brands in underneath their umbrella? Yeah, good question. I I mean, again, it it probably, unfortunately, it does depend on the objectives of the rights and what they're trying to do. I guess if it's all about revenue maximization, then, you know, uh, that's probably one approach versus, you know, do they need to get maybe younger, cooler, different types of brands involved in their sport? to help drive the overall attractiveness of that sport. And so, you know, I think what we see is that certainly most rights holders try to separate, um, you know, their sponsorship uh, portfolio, if you like, and therefore broaden the portfolio. But um, it's not always a successful piece, uh, you know, and therefore you often see that they might end up coming back to their existing sponsors and saying, well, actually, you know, if we provide you with this extra level of content and competition, then, you know, you wouldn't kind of pay more for that. So, so yeah, I think I think you you see both sides of it, but um, I think more often than not, you do see it being more of a case of yeah, adding to existing. Um, but yeah, it certainly depends on on what they're trying to do and, and how easy it is for them to tell in the, uh, the let's call it the, the secondary or, or the uh, the new format. Are there any benefits that you see or that you are of the opinion? And, and when I say benefits, I mean properties or inventory that you think are very underutilised but are yet perfectly suited to either new formats or addressing changing attention spans? Ooh, uh, that's not an easy one. Um, I think, you know, ultimately sponsorship, you know, certainly under the major sports, you know, there's a significant amount of clutter and, you know, you've got, you know, sponsors who've been working hard with the rights holders to drive the most value uh, for a long period of time, so we've seen a lot of innovation in that space. But I, I still think things can be done better. So, you know, things like you know, just well-packaged social media content. Um, you're obviously seeing a bit more of like AR slash or men's reality slash virtual reality as a type of content. I think it's, it's kind of becoming more interesting for certain players. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think the short form ex- kind of exclusive highlight type of content and being able to provide that to the consumer, you know, in a an easy, digestible, quick format um, is kind of really does have traction and, and is starting to be monetized by some rights holders. Um, but yeah, I think there's still a lot of a lot of way to go for that to be kind of fully utilized uh, by both rights holders and brands. So so yeah, it's probably probably there. Content delivery and consumption can sometimes be really hard to track through to. Act- direct engagement with a brand, what options are there to measure success of content and how do you advise people to do it well? Right. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, again, it's about being clear on the objectives. So, you know, are they, are they looking for a reach or, or, or acquiring an audience slash fan base? Is it about engagement, as you say? Um, is it about conversion slash monetization? I mean, it should be about or three ultimately, but it depends on where they are in their life cycle. Um, and so, but with specifically around engagement, is it about video views or click-through rates? Um, how are we going to measure that? Uh, it's dependent on, yeah, what the objectives of the campaign or, or the association with the sport might be. Um, so, yeah, I think ultimately, you know, what I would be saying is let's be, let's be crystal clear on the objectives 
of a wider getting involved in this kind of from a brand perspective, wider getting involved with this rights holder. What are we trying to get out of it? How are we going to tell our message in the right way? And are we looking to grow an audience, engage an audience, or about you know, let's say bottom line here, how many people are going to click through and purchase something from my website, let's say, or you know, and, and work down the purchase funnel. So let's get current objectives and then let's base the measurement or KPI system off the back of that probably. One of the attractive things sponsors see in being able to use content to engage fans is the prospect of turning a fan of a rights holder into an engaged consumer of that sponsoring brand. Now, essentially, that's about the transition from renting or borrowing an audience to owning one of their own, but doing that through the rights holders platform, clearly. Do you have any stories of success in terms of people you've worked with, and you can make it anonymous, to help change their approach to achieve that and how immediate is success if it's done properly? Okay, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, what, why do we think kind of brands get involved in sponsorship is, is an interesting question. I, I, they're certainly going to get media and kind of you know, exposure slash you know, opportunity to integrate branded content. They're going to have IP. Uh, they're going to have kind of hospitality slash tickets. But as you say, look, it should be, having an association with a passionate fan base. So, you know, you have to define the audience segment, the behaviors, the impact, the sponsorship is, is important for them to know. Um, also, just the platform that they have the right to activate on that platform with that right holder. And so, you know, understanding the activation with, as a regard to kind of marketing, it's modeling and how consumers move down the purchase funnel is absolutely important, but it probably depends as much on, you know, what is the type of the product. So, you know, uh, you know, the, the consideration set for a car is going to be very different to kind of a uh, fast moving consumer goods. So, uh, I'd also probably say that like, it depends on on you know, the the brand itself and you know the the, the product slash service that they're selling. You know, if, if they finally uh, get get the consumer to engage or to buy the product, then ultimately, you know, it's only as good as that product is going to be. You need to get it. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't get it to drink. Kind of analogy. But uh, we do we do work with a number of Rights holder clients who you know, we see we see uh, their understanding of their consumer set and, and how they need to change the platform to engage with the with the, with the consumers through through let's say social media content. It really helps drive engagement and viewership, and the brands see significant uplift on on their on their buying rates. Uh, you know, in terms of you know, click through or it could indeed be actually purchasing some of the product. So it can be done pretty quickly, if you're being honest. Um, but it certainly you know that's like week slash month but ultimately yeah it does depend on the product Spencer your role is broad and it's in a rapidly changing and fragmented uh, market apart from Nielsen's great content how do you keep up to date with what's happening in the sponsorship space you mean outside of inside sponsorships uh, (laughs) podcast correct Uh, answer you just got two points (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay, I think I probably split it a little bit by kind of marketing angle. So, you know, things like the drum and marketing week, um, from a sports kind of sponsorship angle, you know, I think sports pro and, and leaders kind of content is pretty good. And then, yeah, I think we all have to be cognizant of, of how tech is influencing and innovating around sport. And so I quite like, uh, kind of recode, even a bit of tech crunch. There's some others out there, but you, know, you can only get around so many, but. They're kind of the ones that I, I, I use. Even LinkedIn is actually not too bad because, you know, depending on who you are affiliated with, you, you get you get pushed a reasonable amount of, of, of content uh, through that that you can uh, you can walk through as well. 
And to be fair, Spencer, you've only got so much attention that you can divide across all those channels. Right. <laughs> Spencer, if people want to get in touch with you, connect on social media, etc., what can they do? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, Spencer Miller, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so that's probably the best, best, uh, best form of contact. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to kind of... Uh continued kind of conversation with, with others. Spencer Nolan, Head of Consulting, UK and Europe at Nielsen Sports. Thank you so much for taking us inside, changing attention spans and how they are prompting rights holders to rethink. No problem. Great. It's such a period of change, but at the same time a period of immense opportunity and creativity if both rights holders and brands are willing to work together properly to achieve well-defined objectives. So thanks again to Spencer Nolan for spending some time with us, and I trust that you found some thought-provoking views in the chat with him. That's about all we have time for in this episode. Be sure to head to the show notes at sponsor.net where I've provided all the links if you'd like to get in contact with Spencer and connect with him, or even download a copy of Nielsen Sports Commercial Trends in Sports 2017. Don't forget to head to sponsor.net also to read Mark's blog in detail. And of course, if you aren't getting the blogs or the podcasts directly to your inbox each and every week, then just shoot me an email or sign up at sponsor.net. If you haven't already, do us a massive favour and head to iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews help others just like you find the podcast and learn from others in the industry. So it really is important and I hope you can help. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponsor.net. And of course, you can connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn or email at mark at sponsor.net. And don't forget that you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponsor.net or search for Sponsor on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.